Hello and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex for BTN.com. And you already know it's that time of year. It's March Madness. It is upon us. It's the best time of year for people like myself who love college basketball. I'm sure a lot of the listeners agree with me on that. So we are uh, in the heat of March Madness right now. The best weekend of the year for college basketball. However, this episode itself is not March Madness focused. Um, I was on a uh, vacation following Big Ten tournament, so I was not able to put together a March Madness episode. But I I am able to get you a episode this week because I recorded an interview while I was in New York City and sent an interview and um, had to wait a couple weeks, sit on it until after the Big Ten tournament, kind of let that go by. And uh, now that I'm back, I am dropping it for you now. So I promise I will get a March Madness episode next week with you know, tournament breakdowns with the Big Ten teams still left in it. Hopefully it's all four. Um, they are all fairly high seeds, so I anticipate there'll be plenty to talk about in the next couple of weeks, and there are some legit Final Four aspirations involved as well with the teams uh, that are in the field of 68, Ohio State, Michigan, Purdue, and Michigan State, and all four of those teams have a deep run potential, I believe. So next week, I promise I'll get you a March Madness-themed Buckets Breakdown-type episode. But for this episode, I mentioned the interview I recorded in New York City. I was fortunate to sit down with uh, Sports Illustrated's Richard Deitch, and actually formerly a Sports Illustrated, Richard Deitch. He was at Sports Illustrated at the time, so when I intro him in the episode, it's with that SI title. And since this episode dropped, he actually announced he was leaving SI to go to The Athletic. And at the time... We recorded the interview. Um, it was late February, and by that point, it had been announced that Richard was also accepting a position in Toronto at 590 The Fan, Sportsnet 590 um, in Toronto, and their primetime sports radio show. So we did talk about that, but his latest career shift is his time at Sports Illustrated coming to an end after 20 years had not been announced yet. So you can kind of get him, you kind of get hit in the sense uh, that he was hinting at further changes. We get to that at the end of the episode, but it was not made explicitly clear. So that is why he is uh, introed as a different title. But for those who don't know, Richard Deitch is a very influential sports media figure. He is, as I mentioned, been at SI, was at SI for over 20 years, was a senior editor, writer, contributor, and is the host of the Sports Illustrated Media podcast, which he has said will continue in some capacity beyond sports illustrated so i'm a big fan of the si media podcast and, and i kind of modeled this show after his podcast to an extent when i interview influential sports media figures and that's kind of the approach i took with richard got into his background in sports media also asked him some questions about the university of michigan because richard was a fellow at the university of michigan he, he took out a fellowship there about 10 years ago so that's kind of the big 10 connection richard has uh as he appeared on this podcast. So great 45-minute discussion with Richard. We did it in a coffee shop in Brooklyn, and we had a, uh, I had a really good time. It was cool meeting him because I listened to nearly every episode of his podcast, and I think you'll enjoy the discussion as well. So before we get to that discussion, just a few reminders. First, please continue to subscribe, rate, review, like the podcast on the platforms that's available. It's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Podbean. So if you're listening on SoundCloud, jump on over to one of those and hit that subscribe button and leave a good review. Pretty please. And another reminder, we've had this going for a while, but there is still a promo code going. 
on the btn.com online store uh, take 10 promo code the promo code is literally take 10 capital t-a-k-e one zero and you can do that before you check out to take 10 percent off your order on the btn.com online store you want to do that you know if you're a michigan fan you want to get your big 10 tournament championship swag um, or a fan of one of the teams in march madness you know they advance you can pick up some some gear on there or if you just want your uh you know run of the mill shouldn't say run of the mill your exceptionally dripping with style gear and merchandise go to the btn.com online store and use that promo code take 10 t-a-k-e one zero all right so with those reminders out of the way we'll get you this interview that was recorded again a couple weeks back in brooklyn new york city with Richard Deitch, formerly of Sports Illustrated, now of The Athletic. And that interview starts right now. All right, so I'm very pleased to be joined here in Brooklyn on a beautiful day in New York City by a very influential sports media figure, senior writer, and editor for Sports Illustrated. I've been there for over 20 years as the host of the Sports Illustrated media podcast. It is Richard Deitch, and you can follow him on Twitter at... Richard Deitch. Richard, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, I'm so influential, Alex, that you've trekked out to a elaborate coffee shop in Brooklyn to interview me. Hey, you got so, me out in Brooklyn. can hear the music uh, playing in the background. It's very authentic here out in I Brooklyn. Try, I'm trying to give you an authentic uh, outer borough experience, as we say. So far, so good. Um, so, Richard, when I have sports media professionals on, and uh, you, you kind of set the model for this, to a degree, I've, I've modeled this show after years when I have... Uh, media personalities on to get into their backgrounds, and that's what I'm going to try and do a little bit with you on this podcast. And since you were in Michigan for a year as well, it does have a, a Big Ten connection. So um, I kind of want to get started really at the beginning. Um, you know, it's kind of the cliche uh, question you ask of all sports media professionals, but where do you where did you start, and how did you first want to get into this business? Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, there's so few things more horrible than talking about yourself and your resume. But so I'll try to do it as fast as I can. But I, I, I've always wanted to write. I've known that since a really, really young age. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a parent who used to get a lot of newspapers delivered at our home. So, um, so my, raised by a single mom. And so I would read the New York Times and the New York Post and Newsday while she was at work. And that fostered a love for me of words. Um, I um, worked for my local newspaper when I was 16. Eventually went to the University of Buffalo. After graduating from there, and obviously worked on my college newspaper there. After graduating from Buffalo, worked a couple of years in that city covering the Bills and the Sabres for a really big weekly up there, as well as uh, did some radio in Buffalo for uh, a big station, and that was pretty a pretty great uh, um, sort of breaking or st- not stomping grounds, but that was a really good petri dish for me, just in terms of while I wasn't necessarily writing for a big place, it gave me the opportunity. To really do a lot of stuff and to cover the pros, cover the Sabres and the Bills. And so from there, I ended up going to grad school at Columbia. And then I have a very, very rare path in that out of Columbia, I got an internship from Sports Illustrated for Kids. And then a year after Sports Illustrated, a year after the Sports Illustrated for Kids internship, SI hired me. And I've been in Sports Illustrated ever since. So I, I really don't have any kind of career path that anybody who's in their 20s right now can really duplicate because the, the odds of landing a job at like 24 at a big place and then staying for like 20 years are just, you know, it's like in a thousand to one shot. So I got very fortunate in that I was in the right place at the right time. And when I entered the business, the market 
was still pretty robust. Newspapers obviously were doing great. Sports Illustrated, Sports Illustrated for kids were roaring, and there were just there were a lot of job opportunities. And then once at Sports Illustrated, I pretty much worked for every part of the brand, from the commemorative division to SI.com to Swimsuit to Sports Illustrated for Women, which we used to have before it folded, to the magazine. And so, um, and so, you know, in short, that's pretty much been my career path. All right, so I'm going to back up to your college days a little bit because, like your podcast, uh, I like to think a decent amount of younger people looking to break into the sports industry and younger sports fans listening to this podcast. So I know you, I know you mentioned how you know, a few decades ago, two decades ago, that it's not the same, and we all know that. But your uh, your days at Buffalo, were you one of those kids that, like, lived in the newsroom and was there all the time, or did you kind of have time to do other stuff? No, I mean, the the University of Buffalo paper is called, the student paper is called the Spectrum, and I pretty much lived there. Um, you know, obviously, um, you can't literally live there. But um, but I put a lot of hours in. I mean, that, that was truly, like, what I made. In the end... You know, I have a communications and political science degrees, but what I majored in was the student newspaper. So yeah, I, I put a lot of time in there, hours and hours and hours and hours. And so that was a great place to just, um, you know, just sort of just make mistakes. You don't realize you're making mistakes at the time, but it was a really good place to just sort of try different kinds of writing forms and and cover different things and make mistakes and obviously meet some great people. Um, you know, who, who became lifelong friends. But that, yeah, to, to answer your question, um, th- that was pretty much my, I would consider that my major, even though obviously I had other classes. Buffalo is a great town, though, because it um, it's, um, it's really a small city, even though it is a city, and very manageable. And it's cold for most, you know, about six or seven months. So there's really not much to do other than, uh, you know, watch sports and drink. So in that in that sense, it was it was a fun place to go to college. Those are two uh, things at the top of my list and my to do list every day, every week. <laughs> so um, I feel that. But I, when I have professionals on this podcast, uh, a few have mentioned they went to grad school, and I always ask why that was uh, the next move because you know a lot of most I think the majority that I have on go right into their their field. So why did you decide to go to Columbia? Yeah, I mean it's a good question because um, I, I don't think grad school is actually for everybody. For me. Uh, I was, I needed, I, I needed something to sort of recalibrate where I was going. If I had stayed in Buffalo, the likelihood is I would have worked for the Buffalo News and probably would have stayed there. That would have been fine. I do love the city of Buffalo, but I had been covering um, entertainment and sports for a couple of years. I had then been in Buffalo uh, for a while, just obviously because I had gone to undergrad there, and I really wanted a. I always knew I was going to go to grad school because I went to a state school. Um, you know, I made the choice to go to Buffalo over a place like Syracuse or Northwestern because it was a lot uh, it was a lot less costly, and my thought was that if I was going to spend big money, I would do it on grad school. So I always in the back of my mind knew I was going to go, but I think I just got to a certain point where I'd been in Buffalo for a long time. Uh, the weather had beaten me down a little bit, and I wanted to just I wanted to get a jump start uh, in a different city. Um, and then I obviously had to make a decision. My first choice, obviously, uh, not obviously, my first choice was um, Berkeley. And my second choice was Missouri. And I didn't get into Berkeley. I got waitlisted in Missouri. And then Columbia was my third choice. That's the only three schools I applied to. Um, I'm glad I ended up going to Columbia. It turned out to be an amazing experience and uh, met some amazing people there. But had I gotten into Berkeley, I, that's, my dream was to basically move to California and to try to start a journalism career there. But I just the reasons for me were that I just I needed to sort of recalibrate a little bit because I knew that I didn't want to spend the next 
30 years in the same city. So I was using grad school as kind of a, a restart a little bit. Um, and again, when I went, and Columbia certainly was expensive, it, it's not as expensive as it is now. And I think I would advise any young person, you have to really do the finances when it comes to a journalism master's degree because you're not going to get a high-paying job out of grad school. And you really have to like... You really have to figure out whether you can handle that debt and when you can pay that debt back. For me, you know, in the late 90s, it was a lot, but it wasn't anywhere close to what it is now. So I'm glad I did it, but I did it really to sort of have like a second start, restart, basically. So once you got to SI, you know, an internship and working for SI Kids is great, but what kind of angle or path did you see to carve out for yourself to eventually get to where you are as a senior editor? Like, what, did you have to take on anything? special or did you kind of carve that out yourself well i mean you know i worked i've worked there for a long time so i've done a lot of different things i certainly didn't go in as sports illustrated like with the dream of oh man i want to cover media i mean it turned out to be great but you know i went into at first when i got hired from si for kids i just wanted to survive i was just hoping that they were going to like me enough to keep me on and so i did everything you know you as a reporter at sports illustrated back then you were essentially a fact checker you would you would fact check the senior writer's work meaning that Every single fact in the story, you would confirm and call. You'd call sources. Um, you'd research. The, you know, uh, the, the the World Wide Web was not as prominent as it is today, so you couldn't necessarily use the web to search everything. So you know, you, you really had to do a lot of legwork to make sure these facts were correct. And then, if you were lucky, you may get to write like one thing every couple of weeks, and that would be something very short at the front of the book, as we'd call it. So, like my first piece ever was was called the catching up with, which meant that it was somebody who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated and you wrote about them 20 years later. Okay. And so the guy, my first ever piece was uh, about a guy named Howie Young. He was a, um, a Detroit Red Wings defenseman in the 60s and drank himself out of the league. He was an alcoholic. And uh, 30 years later, he um, had a whole new life as a bus driver driving around Navajo kids in... Um, trying to remember where he was was it arizona or nevada but in a in a, in a town in the um uh in a town out west and he had basically he had sobered up he had remarried and he was really doing something pretty uh, amazing and admirable in the later years of his life after being in this hockey defense now was that your idea the uh, catching up with or was that something you took catching on? up with existed in sports illustrated but like when you were a young reporter like myself you'd pitch basically right. hey i want to do this i want to do that and it took a while, and finally an editor actually greenlit it, and I got in the magazine. It was like one of the most incredible days. And so, you know, early on, you were really just trying to find wherever you could write. It's not like it was today where you could get hired at your age and write for the web. That did not exist when I was starting out at SI. Like, it was the magazine or nothing. Um, and then eventually, as I sort of made my way through Sports Illustrated, I got assigned to uh, be the tennis reporter. So I got to work with... Uh, Scott Price, SL Price's byline, John Wertheim, and uh, that was a really great experience. So I got to cover a ton of U.S. Opens and other tennis tournaments. I got assigned to the Olympic team, which was my dream, actually. That's what I always wanted to cover as a kid. Got your Olympic shirt on right now. Got my Olympic shirt on now. So uh, there's a woman who's at ESPN. She's a news editor, Sandy Rosenbush. Um, she was essentially my mentor at SI. She assigned me to the Olympics and starting with Salt Lake. I was a reporter there, and so I started covering Olympics. Um, eventually started working for the web and doing that. Um, so, and then women's basketball too is what Sandy Rosenbush assigned me to uh, early on. So my really early years at SI were being um, a reporter and writer reporter on those three beats, and then I eventually moved to our women's sports magazine for a couple of years, where I wrote about all different things and edited all different things, and then 
it may have been like 10 years ago, Paul Fichtenbaum, this is a guy who, um, it, uh, who ran SI.com, um, offered me a job to change my base of operations from the magazine to the web. And that's about the time I sort of started uh, dabbling a little bit more with the media. I had done media stuff for the magazine, but nobody was doing it for the website. And, you know, sort of make a long story short, I'd obviously done other stuff. I was a special projects editor for SI. I, didn't, I haven't always written for SI like weekly like I do now. Um, but like, you know, like eight, seven, eight years ago, um, maybe it was however long it was, um, I just started doing more media stuff. The stuff started getting traffic. And as it got more traffic, I started pushing to my bosses, hey, this is something I really think I could just do full time. Um, what do you think? It took them a long time to be convinced. Um, but eventually, for the last couple of years, um, I've essentially been their media reporter. I still do women's basketball. Um, got off the Olympic speed a couple of years ago. But it, it, at least in terms of my career at SI, it was more of a case of I had really done a lot of different things. And um, the advent of the web just changed my opportunity. It just changed everybody's opportunity because there were so many more opportunities now to write where if you have a finite 100-page magazine, there are only limited opportunities every week. Sure. So you mentioned seven or eight years ago is when you uh, started pitching the full-time media opportunity. Might have been 10. I'm trying to, you know. So, yeah, about a decade ago, though, you uh, spent, I believe, a year at Michigan, right? For 2009. The, yeah, yeah, for right. the uh, Knight Wallace, Wallace Fellowship. Right. So... First of all, to scare, um, your research on me is it, it's 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 scaring me. I'm I'm, looking, hey, I'm, I'm now looking it's, outside it's for. Uh, you ever watch the Americans? I'm now looking for Russian sleepers. <laughs> hey, come in. They're, 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 they're crawling all over Brooklyn. They right? all over Brooklyn. Go ahead. Sorry, Alex. I'm no, sorry, sorry for throwing you off your rhythm. No, it's all good. Um, so yeah, the Night Wallace Fellowship. First of all, can you kind of lay out what that program was, why you were interested in it, and how you got accepted into that particular program at Michigan? As an Illinois guy, are you really interested in Michigan programs, Alex? I'm a oh. BTN guy. Come on, Richard. <laughs> BTN, that's first, right. first and foremost. Well done. Um, so the Knight Wilds program is um, it's, it's a mid-career fellowship where the University of Michigan and the Knight Foundation bring in 12 journalists from around the world to study at Michigan for the year. The they pay you to study, which yep. is just the boondoggle of boondoggles. They pay you seventy thousand dollars for the year, uh, or it's not really. It's like for eight months, um, and so what you do is you you put your job on hold. If you're a freelancer, obviously you're sort of it's not as big a deal, but you put your job on hold and you come to Michigan and you can take any kind of classes you want from the law school to undergrad classes. Um, you go in there with a proposal as to kind of what you want to study or write about, but you don't necessarily have to do that in the end. Um, and so it's just basically this amazing program where you just like basically stop working for a year and just recharge. So um, it wasn't something I ever expected to do, but I had heard about it. I loved the University of Michigan as a kid. Like that was just like a dream kind of school because I, you know, I went to Buffalo and Buffalo at that time, it, it really had no athletic tradition at all. It's since made the NCAA tournament. It's okay now, but Michigan just like you know, like yep. Shem Beckler and just like fielding you. You just, I would look at that as a kid growing up in New York and I was like, this is like what college should be. So I always had like kind of a, an affinity for the school. So I applied and much to my stunning, uh, uh, much to my disbelief, I got it. Um, I, I applied with a pretty good um, plan about um, coming right off the Beijing Olympics. And I, um, I told them that I sort of wanted to. Uh, investigate what I had seen up close sort of as an outsider. I kind of sold them on a total BS uh, platform, to be honest. And that's how we all, yeah. on our college applications, we all... Yeah. we all. In the end, my what I ended up studying was the intersection of 20-somethings in the sports blogosphere. I spent most of my time at Michigan, in terms of the academics, hanging out in the Michigan Daily newsroom, um, 
talking to a lot of their kids to bring back that those findings for Sports Illustrated right. about like how people were consuming sports news. So my in the end, my bosses really liked that I did that because I brought them back like a twenty five page like uh, survey on like how people your age now, you know, twenty four, twenty, well, actually be a little younger, how twenty one, twenty two year olds. We're consuming news, but at Michigan it was great. I spent the whole. I, t- I took law school classes. I took an acting class, which was so much fun. Um, I sat in on some sociology seminars, and we went to Russia and Argentina. We traveled as a group, uh, including interviewing uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the former uh, Secretary oh, wow. General of uh, the. Uh, I want to be the Soviet Union, but the, what, what, whatever they were calling the Russia then under Gorbachev. So it was an amazing experience. Um, it. I would recommend it to anybody. It's honestly an insane thing. The, the, the idea to be paid $70,000 to study is just an insanity. So it could not have been a more um, fun and relaxing year. And to Sports Illustrated's everlasting credit, and my old boss, Terry McDonald, he kept my job, which is amazing that he did that. And so um, so that was a year. And it really gave me um, – it was just cool because I had never lived in the Midwest. I mean I lived in Buffalo, which is more Midwest than the city, but it's different. And so giving, living in Michigan – uh, and traveling the state of Michigan gave me a really interesting sort of sense of that state. And I also was there when Obama won his first election. Right. And that was just interesting because um, I'll never forget the day in 2008 that he won. And you walked along the campus and you saw like kids of different races hugging each other. People were walking down the street in like pure joy. It was a, I've never seen anything like it. Um, it's kind of fascinating to think about where we are 10 years later. But um, – um, it, it was great. I, I, it's one of the best things I ever did, and it's not something I ever expected to do. So, how did you like Ann Arbor, the campus? Like, did you go to football games, basketball games, and uh, was that the Appalachian State year too, uh, or would it have been a year later? Uh, Michigan. The year I went was Rich Rodriguez's three and nine years, the worst year in Michigan okay. history. I don't. I think Appalachian State was either the year, year after, before. Year before. Yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, they were terrible. I mean, they were, it was it was a really bad football year. But I did go to a couple games. Uh, I went to see the basketball team play and the women's basketball team play. My advisor, although wasn't really an advisor, I, we sort of just met for coffee every now and then, was the athletic director at Michigan, a guy named Bill Martin. Oh, wow. And so that was just interesting to just get to talk to him. So, yeah, I did sort of like check out the uh, – the, um, uh, you know, their sports. Actually, the two sports that I came away really most impressed by were softball. Uh, they have a dominant women's softball yeah. program forever. Still good. Yeah, and field hockey. They were excellent that year for whatever reason, so I checked them out, and they were really cool. Women's basketball is good too now. They're good now. Yeah. They have a, uh, Kim Barnes-Rico from St. John's has come in and rechanged re- that program. So I definitely wanted when I was there to take advantage of the Michigan athletic experience because it was so different than the University of Buffalo. I mean, this was big-time athletics. Yep. Like. You know, you walk by the big house, it's like you are in oh, a yeah. real stadium. Finger, um, it was fingerprints to get in the football facility when we went there. Wow. This yeah, not, not this year. Um, and it just, you know, again, like even though their basketball arena was not the greatest compared to others, it was still the place of the Fab Five. It was still the place of like, uh, you know, that, nine, that Glenn Rice championship team. So that, that was very cool. Again, I'm just glad I, as someone who has really been based in New York and Buffalo for the most part, which does not have mega college tradition. I mean, St. John's is a good program here, but it's it's not it's not a sprawling yeah. and Ann Arbor. Comp. Ann Arbor is kind of like held up as that quintessential correct college. An- Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, to me, had um, it had slivers of New York, like it you know culturally, intellectually, and so it wasn't so different than what I was used to. But and this is an important one, it also had a real Midwest feel. Because most of the students and most of the people who are there are from the Midwest, mm. or you know, a lot of them from Michigan. 
So it just, it gave me, I think it's very important when you're in journalism, I probably should have done more of this. It just, it, you, you should always try to live in different parts of the country if you can. I, and I really wish I had lived in the Southwest or, or the West at least once, because I think it just gives you a better sense of, of even when you're interviewing people, you know, that people come from different places. But yeah, Ann Arbor, I'm sure like Champaign, and I'm sure like Madison, and a lot of these Big Ten uh, little towns. It's just, it's a great, great place to be. Like, it's, it, I, you, you totally, having, gone, having done that year, I now understand why so many kids in Michigan dreamed of going to like a Michigan or a Michigan State. Makes Definitely. Sense. So you studied the sports blogosphere you mentioned, um, which at the time was booming, exploding. I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like podcasts like we're doing now have kind of taken that place and kind of commanded this generation's attention. Like I don't think of like sports bloggers as like the primary, you know, personalities anymore. It's it's they've all got, they've all gotten old, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the you know I don't know where podcasting is going to go, but it's going to be a medium um, for a long time. The people your age want on demand content right you want basically to listen or watch what you want when you want it's the reason why netflix is as big as it is and that's the reason why podcasting is as big as it is it's also an intimate medium in that you really feel like you are connecting with the people you're listening to it's just it's different than television in that sense it's in your ears and it just i don't know it just the connection is deeper for whatever reason and there's just so many interesting like podcasts that are happening now like so many different sports so many different niches and so yeah i find too like you that like there are so many young young people in the business in their 20s who are doing interesting things in the podcast space because the other thing too is like you generally speaking you can't walk out of like illinois or michigan and get a tv job where you have 40 minutes to sort of speak your mind right, right. yeah but if you have a podcast you can go an hour with your thoughts your beliefs your take that's why it's a great medium and it's uh, the barriers to entry are so low that basically, what do you need? A laptop, a couple other pieces of equipment, and iPhone, can, <laughs> iPhone, and you can basically do your own. So that I think that's really the game changer, is that the um, the technology exists where almost anybody with the right tech can basically become a podcaster. Yeah. Full disclosure, I mean, at, at Illinois, I didn't do any sort of you know radio. I, I went on the radio as a guest and and, right. and stuff like that, but. I was not like a part of the radio station. I didn't have any of the technical experience to do it. And you're right, the barrier to entry is so low, even I could figure it out to, exactly. <laughs> to pull it off. So speaking of the podcast business, the, the podcast game, um, for me and many others, your Sports Illustrated Media Podcast is kind of the place to go to learn about the sports media industry. And, and really, like you said, a decade ago, you kind of found that there was this uh, audience out there for that type of coverage. And uh, I didn't even... You know, realized until I started listening to your podcast regularly that that this space existed. So, what was the inspiration for the SI Media podcast? Well, um, this the SI Media so formal. The SI Media podcast, <laughs> um, we started um, before even I was doing this. Like, there was an idea to like talk to the writer of the cover story every week. It's probably like four years ago. Whenever podcast was really, really in its infancy, and so we started playing around with that. And we had a couple people there around your age who are pretty really good tech that was not me and i just started interview like tim laden would do a cover story on i'm making this up Lindsay vaughn sure and so i would get laden and we would talk like for 25 minutes on how the story came together who he interviewed why this was important i don't remember what we called it we might even call the cover story but that's sort of like the genesis of it is we were just doing they they wanted a um a podcast that kind of was like a promotional vehicle 
for what the cover story was each week. And I, I knew all the writers, and I, I, I get along with um, just about every all of them. I, have, I shouldn't say get along, but I had a relationship with all of our top writers because I was with them at the Olympics and stuff. So um, so I started doing this. I don't honestly remember how long we did it, but that's where it started. Then that thing eventually folded. Um, and a couple of years ago, there was just a recommitment by SI to sort of try to get podcasts going. And so there were a group of us. I think it was me. Grant Wall was one in soccer. Um, John Wertheim was one in tennis. It's probably somebody who tried basketball too. We're, I, we, I mean, we're talking about like, you know, you, you're looking at this equipment now. We're talking at a coffee shop and you're probably like, oh, this is like, you know, low budget compared to whatever the ringer has. We did these podcasts in a swimsuit closet, like literally with the lowest tech possible. This was Sports Illustrated. Right. I mean, so we were like with everybody else. And so we slowly but surely just sort of started chugging out podcasts. I hosted the soccer podcast. I was miserable at it. I was mispronouncing like German names and getting yelled at from people on Twitter, which was great. Um, <laughs> And so I started this – I don't remember when I said It might have been 2015 or 2014. But I just started basically interviewing. I thought like while the SI part was cool, I said why – I just basically felt like it would be really cool to expand this to like bring Joe Buck on, uh, bring uh, Al Michaels on if I could get him. I don't even think I was even going that high at that point. I was more like let, let me try to get like uh, Don Van Natta or Pat Forty on or something like that. And so, um, so I did a couple of them. The quality was – the sound quality was terrible. But I noticed that like it was getting like at that time like three or four or five thousand downloads. I was like, we're not doing any promotion, right? And there's at least some kind of audience there. So I, I kept sort of really pushing my bosses to keep doing this. So did people like Grant and John. And then I'd say a year and a half ago, um, we partnered with a podcast company, and then we just took it to like a more, much more professional level. This podcast company, Cadence Thirteen, which is excellent. Yep. And so they started doing Peter King. Uh, the open floor guys, Ben Golliver and Andrew Sharp, who are super, super popular. Uh, Grant, myself, I think at the time Seth Davis was doing one. So we really, basically the genesis was it started with like talking to writers at our place. I then extended it. And then once we got like more professionalized with this podcast group, then I could really like, you know, take it to a different level because I'd be in a studio of a real producer, sound production quality is high. And at that point I could really get people to come on. And then... Like everything else, you know, the podcast, it doesn't have to be like part of my take where you have a million downloads. Like for what I was doing, as long as the people in the business, like they were their colleagues or people in the business were like, hey, I heard you on this podcast. It was really, really interesting. And most people in the media don't get an hour to talk about themselves. It's just not – they don't have that forum. Um, at a certain point after a couple of months of me really trying to um, book each week heavy – there's not a week now that goes by where I'm not getting 10 people pitching me on either their clients yeah. or themselves. So it's sort of just now become far easier to do it in that um, I have a lot of options and a lot of opportunities. And then as the podcast sort of continued, I just realized that like there were a lot of people who were interested in this content. And that's why I started doing roundtables with other media reporters where I could have a chance to um, offer more opinion beyond just the written column. And so that's sort of where it is. So, you know, again, this is never going to be, uh, you know, Simmons's podcast or part of my take or, you know, the, the, the top 10 podcasts that exist uh, in the country. But, you know, for a niche podcast, for people who really are into sports media, it's done really, really good. It's done better than I ever expected. For sure. Uh, like I said, it's one that 
I'm trying not to miss an episode, and I always enjoy it. I, I always, lo- I always, you. Yeah, I always you. learn something too from it, and it's uh, it's valuable. But um, I, I know you mentioned that you don't have trouble getting guests anymore. You know, you're getting pitched constantly on people wanting to come on. Do you have any uh, enemies in the industry that just will not come on that you have tried to get on? Enemies. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the one thing you sort of learn here is that um, I have little kids now, and I've really reduced, I think, my uh, Twitter fighting to start with, which if you look back on it, was just very silly. Um, so I don't, I, I, enemies is not the right word. There's certainly a lot. There, Not a lot. There are people in sports media I have zero professional respect for. Sure. So I would never invite them on. Yeah. So it's not really like I'm dying to have someone on who uh, who I, I might not get along with because I, that's just not a conversation I want to have. Um, so there has been... Let me just think about this and make sure I don't sort of overstate it. I don't think there's anybody I've wanted on that hasn't come on. Um, like, there are people who, like, I would love to talk to LeBron James about how he believes sports media works in this country and how he feels he's covered, but that's not going to happen. I'm right. not getting LeBron James. Right. So there are people like that I would love to have on, but, like, off the top of my head, I can't think of someone I, like, I wanted on who said no. And if they say no, like, like I could find a hundred other people to have interesting conversations. You know... Uh, to me, a lot of the stuff that I've done that's really, really interesting are not necessarily people like who you've heard of. They're just behind-the-scenes people or producers. Now, you can't do f- like seven in a row because like you do have – Tune out. Yeah, you have tune out. You have – I mean there are sponsors I have, so you have to get a certain number. Um, but no, the, the to, to be very blunt, um, I, I have the freedom, I guess, or flexibility where if, if there is somebody like who's in the news who I – I'm not even sure how to explain this to you. Like, let's. I guess the best way to just sort of explain it is, I'm, I'm never going to invite somebody on I don't respect, so it's just not an issue. Sure. So what's the most rewarding part for you, and who do you learn the most from? Is it athletes? Is it reporters? Is it like producers, like you said? Or is it just different because they're just... From the podcast itself? Yes. Um, I think I've learned from everybody. I think everybody, um, I think everybody has an interesting sort of story and truth like the recent ones i did like i just interviewed carrie champion who uh from espn who interviewed durant and james in akron for um uh for uninterrupted which obviously became national news when the fox news hosts uh uh you know uh pretty much told not pretty much but told lebron james and kevin durant shut up and dribble why must they sort of think they can talk i mean it's outrageous kind of comments from her and so, you know, what was interesting to just listen to Carrie Champion as, you know, arguably either the most or second highest profile African-American woman in the sports media business, you know, her, Jamel Hill, probably the most well-known, yep. just like explain to me how she viewed that, those comments as, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a black woman in the business who has had to hear that stuff throughout her career. So that's just interesting to me, white dude from New York who's doesn't who's had it easy, much easier than her in the business. And I think everybody who I've interviewed, whether it's Carrie or you know you get to go the total reverse, Jim Nance. Now Jim Nance and Carrie Champion could not be more different, both gender wise, race wise. But Jim Nance has like fascinating things to tell you about how he, from um, his days at the University of Houston as a twenty year old, eventually made it to the you know essentially the most famous golf broadcaster of our lifetime. So. Uh, I, I've interviewed reporters who have talked about how they went about reporting their stories. Paula Levine, not too long ago, um, reported on Michigan State. She's an ESPN Outside the Lines reporter, and she sort of took me through the process of 
how she went about that reporting. So there's really, I mean, you don't always get, every guest is not like great, like, you know, in terms of like, this is the most compelling thing I've ever heard. But there's nobody I've had on who I haven't like just found some part of the conversation interesting because generally speaking, they have, if they're not interesting themselves, they have interesting jobs. Yeah. So there's something there that's pretty, pretty compelling to me. Yeah, I listened to the uh, Carrie Champion one on the plane ride over and she was phenomenal. Yeah, that, 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 that was... You you do sometimes get a rare guest who is super honest, right? And that was that. I, I, I um again, they could not be more different. But a couple months, maybe it was a year ago at this point. But I interviewed Ryan Rosillo, and I happened to get him in one of these contemplative moods where he wasn't sure if he was going to stay at ESPN or leave. And that was another one where it just felt like I was just having a conversation, and the guest forgot the mic was on. And if you can get to that point, that's a good interview, right? All right, we'll move on from the SI Media podcast. Before we wrap up, I did want to get to. Uh, personal development for you because personal development. yeah because right. uh, when you know Uh-oh. doing my extensive research on you could have been that expensive <laughs> before, before I came over here uh, you're having a uh, bit of a career shift you're career shift moving over to primetime sports in Toronto and right. uh, that includes a relocation to Toronto so that does big personal news how did this come about well um, for the last five years I've been a guest on um, five ninety the fan which is a very big uh, sports talk station. In Toronto, and that um, that guest, uh, those guest stints have included me flying up there a couple times to do a week of shows with various guests, various guests, various hosts. And so um, I, I got to know both the hosts there and management there, and we just had a really great rapport. I love the city of Toronto. I think it's a fascinating city and a great sports city. And over the last couple of years, they've always just kicked around the idea, like, would I think about doing this more full time? And so um, we got close a couple years ago, but over the last couple months in particular, there were some openings on this show, Primetime Sports, which is a really, really well-known show in Toronto, Drive Time. And so um, opportunity existed to do 30 weeks as a co-host. Bob McCowan is the host. He's a very, very famous sports, essentially invented sports talk radio in Canada. And so talked about it with my family, and it just seemed like one of those things where like if I... If I didn't do it, like 10 years from now, I'd think back like, man, why don't I at least like right. sort of try that? It just seemed like it could be a really fascinating thing. So yeah, um, I'm going to go up in June and I'm going to be on the air 30 weeks a year talking about, obviously, um, you know, th- there will be a focus obviously on Canadian sports, but that show is very different. It's not, they don't do four hours on the Leafs third line. They do a lot of like sort of macro issues, talk about the NFL, talk about the NBA. So it really... As an American, it kind of I could be a pretty good fit there because you don't have to. It's not a show that's going to be discussing like the Ottawa Senators free agent picks for the last five years. It's just sort of not what they do. Um, so it's going to be a massive life switch. Obviously, uh, totally different country, immigration issues, and all that. But I'm really excited. And Rogers, who owns Sportsnet, could not have been better to me. And then in terms of media stuff, which I know Alex, you will that you will eventually get to. Um, I'm going to keep doing sports media. I'm still sort of working through uh, where that's going to be and how that's going to be, but I'm certainly not going to give that up. And one of the reasons I took the Rogers job in Toronto is because I could still cover American media. Like uh, it still sort of gives me the opportunity because it's um, it's not a 52 week a year job where I can sort of still do that. And so um, so I'll, I'll still be I'll still be writing media. I'm sort of going to sort of figure out where that's going to be. And um, and yeah, the ESPN PR, Fox PR, and NBC PR will not be getting rid of me as quickly as they probably would like. 
So uh, as far as your future at SI goes, um, is that is that still going to be that's a that's, outlet you work for? That is a that is a big, as we say in the business, a big. TK, you know what TK means? To come in magazine terms. I don't see that. Just uh, shows. So <laughs> TK means uh, to come. Yeah, I will. Uh, in a, I'll be able to sort of talk more about that in a couple of weeks. Um, like I said, I think the best I could sort of say now is um, I'm sort of still working through where I will be doing my writing. That's probably the. Uh, I wish I could say more, but that's probably the best I could say now. All right. So a couple final questions, Richard, before we wrap up. Covered a lot of big events in your life, uh, NCAA championships, Super Bowls. I know you're, uh, you've covered more Olympics than most people. Do you have any particular favorites or any that, that stand out as uh, ones that uh, stood out above the rest? Uh, I mean, all the Olympics were amazing for different reasons. Um, you know, I loved Athens uh, and Turin just because it was fascinating to, uh, to cover an Olympics in Greece, birthplace of civilization. And Italy is just an amazing place to be. For an Olympics, uh, um, you know, great people, great food. I think if there's one, this was not per se my favorite Olympics. This was really hard. And this is Beijing in 2008, different language, very lost in translation. But one of the things I'm so glad I was able to cover because I'll never ever be able to duplicate this was I covered the uh, gold medal uh, men's match in table tennis, and to. And I was not. I, I might have been. Might have been only two Western journalists there. The rest were. Um, were uh, Asian-based journalists and mostly from China. And so to be in that arena, one of the few Westerners there, to hear like 15,000 people just, I mean, literally just going nuts over table tennis and chanting like Jai Yo, which means like let's go in uh, Mandarin, um, was incredible. I mean, that was, I've never seen anything like that to be, because obviously in our country, table tennis, you, would, you might get five people there. Right. Um, so to sort of like that's what the Olympics provides you like these moments where you just can never duplicate ever in your life like seeing something incredible. When I was in Turin, I covered a lot of speed skating, and I remember there was an Italian I forgot his name Enrico. For, I forgot I forgot the guys the guy who won. I'll see if I can find it on Twitter as or on uh, on Google as we're uh, as we're talking here. But you know, basically like you 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 just like to be in a um, to be in a home country. Where, um, like, and to see something like, just see, like, a home country person, uh, oh, now I can't find this. I'm really bummed, Alex. Why can't I find Enrico? All right, let's turn it all off. So, the podcast cannot even be Keep it going. If, okay. if, you don't, if you don't know. There it is. Thing. Okay, Enrico Fabrice. <laughs> if you right. didn't find that, I was going to have to cancel the whole episode. Yeah, so, so I, I covered this. It was a 1500 men's speed skating gold in Torino. And, um, and this was a guy, I don't believe he was expected to win, and to watch, like, this Italian win in speed skating with the entire like just place going wild. And again, you never get to cover speed skating just as a general sports report in the U.S. It's just not something we cover. So like moments like that were incredible. I saw every one of Usain Bolt's gold medal wins um, prior to Rio. And so um, that was incredible to watch him double in London. So it's it's the Olympics are just an amazing place because it's like – at its idealistic best, it's kind of what the world should be. All these different countries and people coming together in one place and sort of uh, having fun and enjoying each other. At its worst, of course, it's it's totally uh, corrupt, drugs, um, and uh, you know, countries just totally stealing money from their people to pay for uh, athletic venues, which are never used again. Right. In that sense, it's, it's absurd. So the Olympics sort of just gives you an amazing experience and. To be able to like travel to other countries on somebody else's dime in sports is just like the dream. So, you know, 
I think, yeah, to me, like that match, that table tennis match in probably Beijing might be the most memorable for me. But I really saw a lot of amazing stuff, including um, including all of Bolt's wins. And I, I went to almost every track night in London. So Mo Farah and some of these other wins. It's just like, that. you know, there's... I was very fortunate. I've been very fortunate. Oh, and I should also say that um, the gold medal game in Sochi for the women's gold uh, women's gold medal game when Canada beat the U.S. in overtime was about as amazing experience as I've ever covered as well, uh, where the U.S. basically hit the post uh, under two minutes left, would have won that goal. So I've been very lucky. SI like afforded me the opportunity to see seven Olympics or cover seven Olympics and like. I would say for every one of those, there was something amazing that I saw. All right, Richard. So I don't necessarily expect you to have a strong take one way or the other on this last question, but since you do cover sports in New York, uh, I found it interesting that when I tweeted yesterday a picture of it was it's like a sign that has uh, arrows pointing toward each Big Ten campus with the distance <laughs> right. to each campus, and obviously the distances are really far away from New York City. It's right outside the Fox News Court building. I, I tweeted it out yesterday, and it just like took off. It got so big that. Darren Ravel did the thing where he steals your tweet and, and tags you in it. <laughs> Don't get me into another fight with Ravel, Alex. Please. So you know, you know what I'm talking about there. But yeah, it, it's blown up, and I've got people in my mentions it's like great. saying that uh, you know why is the Big Ten in New York City? Like this is stupid. This is dumb. So I just want to get your thoughts. Uh, being here in New York, like, are you like? Do you have any strong opinions either way on the tournament being here? No, I have no, I have no strong opinions either way. I think it's great. I mean, I, and maybe the Big Ten people will. Uh, um, you know, I, I can understand why some people. At Big Ten schools, wish it was at a Big Ten campus or at a Big Ten city. That I, I, I mean, I sort of get that, but it's great exposure for the league to be in New York, media capital of the world. Um, I would think that the kids playing must think it's pretty cool to be in New York, playing at the Garden, or they're playing garden. at the Bar. Yeah, yeah, so you get to play at Madison Square Garden. Most of those kids are not playing in the NBA, so in that sense, how great is that? They get to play on the Garden floor. Um, the who who sort of who goes to the game or who doesn't should never. I always feel like it's weird when fans are like, "Oh, they didn't sell tickets or tickets to this." Well, That's always weird. Well, people oh. don't re- like the, the games in Indian Chicago on Wednesday and Thursday. Right. Like it's not like it's well attended there. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. It, nor should no. I mean like that's nor should that like be really a big concern. That's like sort of to me like that's the league's job. I I, I mean again I, I didn't graduate from a Big Ten school so I feel like others would obviously have more investment yeah. in this. But I don't see why that would be an issue. I think it's like. An interesting place to hold a postseason tournament because it gives you different kind of exposure. That said, um, if the tickets don't sell or if the Big Ten doesn't feel like it's getting the the, the best uh, promotion for this, they will, I guarantee, move it back to a Midwestern city. Well, it's going back anyway. That's the thing. So like, this go. was this was already decided a long time ago. That was this maybe, for Rutgers basically to sort of like as a? Uh, I think it was kind of generally just for the exposure. I don't right. I don't have the official reasoning, but like you know it, they've. They were in D.C. last year, New York this year. Oh, I didn't even know they were in D.C. Yeah, oh, D.C. last year. Okay. So, um, you know, they've kind of made their East Coast swing. They're going to be back in, in Indian Chicago for uh, the foreseeable future. So, yeah, I don't... Is this an actual controversy somewhere? Are people I mean, people are just... People complain when the decision was made. They've been... We've kind of heard rumblings, like, as... Like, every time we promote it. And then yesterday, like, I, would, I was surprised at the brushback because it's like, okay, people have known this for three years now that this is happening. But, you know, I also get... I grew up as a Big Ten fan, fan of a Big Ten school, and I get like why people would be annoyed that they can't drive two hours to see it. Like I, I understand that, but I, I think 
it'll be a cool event and people will forget about it that forget about the their negative feelings toward it once yeah i mean to me like and again i'm a total outsider here but like if it's a one-off it's it's really it's sort of meaningless like it's going to go back next year or wherever it goes back and exactly it's not like they move the tournament permanently exactly all right well richard we uh, avoided being kicked out by the, the Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn moms, so <laughs> we're, we're uh, got to wrap up here in the cafe, the, uh, what is it, Uptown Roasters? Is that what it's called? Roasters, Uptown yeah. Roasters, all right. So shout out to Uptown Roasters for, for hosting us here, and I uh, really appreciate you coming on, Richard, taking some time out of your day, and um, I'll continue to follow your work. Thank and, you. And uh, good luck in Toronto. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it. Good questions. Thank you very much. All right, thanks again to Richard for joining me. Really appreciate him taking time out of his day and his busy schedule to sit down with me. Um, it's cool meeting him face-to-face in New York City. And you now that trip's kind of in the rearview mirror and we got March Madness ahead, like I mentioned at the top of the show, we'll definitely get you some March Madness-themed content coming on this podcast very soon. Uh, this is dropping, I believe, Friday. Listen to this on Friday. It should be a March Madness episode mid-next week following the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament the first weekend um, of March Madness and we'll see how many big te- Big Ten teams make it through I wouldn't be surprised if all four make it through the first round and uh, any of these teams honestly are easily Sweet 16 caliber and we'll see how many they get heading into the second weekend so I'm uh, excited to watch March Madness unfold I'm sure you are too and I will hop off now so you can take in the remaining action this weekend whenever you're listening to this and um head to next week and get you some March Madness themed Take Time Podcast hashtag content coming at you very soon. So thanks to everyone as always for listening. Thanks to Wes White once again for producing the show and we will talk to you next time here on the Take Time Podcast.